Our reading this morning comes from Titus, chapter 2, verse 11, to chapter 3, verse 8, and you'll find that on page 1199 of the Church Bibles. Titus 2, starting at verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and to show true humility towards all men. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Saviour, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. It seemed a good idea during uh, July, as uh, it was my task to set up this series uh, of autumn sermons, to take a sentence from each of these familiar carols, to take that sentence, to bring it to the Bible, and to produce a sermon. Uh, there is uh, you have this title, Calls You One, Calls You All, which was in the original carol, but when you sang it in the opening hymn, it was missing. So that's a bad start. So it's, the title is good, but one of the joys of changing familiar carols is that you have to sing a little bit more thoughtfully. That doesn't negate the purpose of the sermon, that God does call us into his rich treasury as we have it in the Lord Jesus. So this being the second uh, Sunday in Advent, what I'd like to do from the reading that Neil uh, has brought to us is to give one verse, uh, and that is uh, verse 13, and I'll just read that again. That's in uh, chapter 2 and verse 13. Uh, we wait for the blessed hope and glorious, or the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us and so forth. So that's the verse, that's where we are. That's going to be the, the focal point. 
But first of all, just a comment about Advent itself. It means arrival or appearing. And that phrase is used there in verse 13, appearing. Or it's often, and we're familiar, aren't we, uh, that it is a, a season before the coming of Christ. And often we associate that with celebrating the birth of the Lord Jesus. If we narrow down this verse to one word, and even narrow down that word a little, so we come back to verse 13, this glorious appearing, or literally this glorious advent, narrow that verse, that word glorious to glory. So there you are. Little is more, that's the sermon. Glory. Could ask Gary to announce the hymn and we can go home. That would be nice change. But maybe just a couple of things to say. Glory. I hope that for us that this is going to be a glorious advent. Uh, last week we, uh, we were in Northern Ireland and I was listening to the local uh, Ulster radio and the discussion was about uh, has Christmas lost its magic? That was the term. Or within church parlance, has Christmas lost its glory? Is it jaded? Or is there something here that we need to look again and see the sheer glory and the wonder of Christmas and Advent? Before we do that, let's try to engage with this briefly with uh, the, this part of uh, Titus 2. What is he saying here to this fledgling church? Well, look, look at the first advent, first of all. The first advent. You have it there in verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. It's appeared. Pointing to a definite event in the history of mankind, B.C., A.D., but more than that, pointing to an event that we call, and preachers love this word, incarnation. It's a tricky word, and it's often used, and indeed, Wesley's great carol, isn't it? Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, will be resonated throughout the shops, throughout the whole country, on, in, in, in village squares, in cathedrals, in high and lowly places. Incarnation. One of those loved by theologians, perhaps not so much by uh, just uh, ordinary believers like us. Let's try to look at it, just very quickly, to break up this word so that it gives us a bit of an idea of what we're talking about. At Christmas, that's what we do. We celebrate the incarnation, the birth of the incarnate Son of God. It would probably help us if we were to break it into two parts. Incarnate. Incarnate. Carnate is a, carna is, a, is, a, is a, a word, a Latin word, which means flesh. When we go home in the next uh, hour and a half or so, sooner, sorry, what I meant was <laughs> we're sitting at our tables in there, so I know. Uh, we will, pro most of us, I'm, I know there may be one or two vegetarians, and that's good, um, but most of us will have a roast, I think. We are carnivorous people. Flesh eaters. The word became flesh. Like us. That's incarnation. And incarnation tells us that the, the divine became enfleshed in Jesus. 
This is a glorious thing. He came where we are to take us to where he is. That is incarnation. That's the real meaning of Christmas. This wonderful transaction of a living faith in a living Lord. There was a controversy raging in the 4th century and Athanasius was isolated in the, in, the, in the Christian church at that time and hence the Athanasius Creed came like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed which these creeds were meant to reaffirm some of the things that people were denying. And people were denying the deity of Jesus. They said, yes, he's human but he's not divine. How could he be divine? He lost his divinity when he was on the cross or something like that. Athanasius said this. It's a wonderful quote. He, now think, think, think like with me now. He, Jesus, became what he was not. He became human. But in his becoming, didn't cease to be who he was. Divine. Hence the mystery. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. And these great cows that we become familiar with, perhaps over-familiar, is just a reminder of the sheer mystery of what we're talking about uh, at this Advent time. Incarnation brings salvation to us. And here's an interesting thing that Titus seems to do to the church. He points the people to Jesus as Savior. And that's, it seems to go back to the original announcement of the birth of Jesus. He's the Savior. Just have a quick look in, if you've got your Bibles open, in Titus 2. Just, just see the frequency of this word. Um, in verse 9, the, the, the ethical requirements of people who put their trust in Jesus, to, not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that everyone will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. In the marketplace, with manifest corruption, People who've had an encounter with Jesus make him attractive. That is our high and holy calling of everyone who professes to know Jesus Christ. That is a very humbling thing. And if you have made it very unattractive, in God's name, ask him to forgive you. And then in verse 13, God our Savior. And verse, chapter 3, verse 4, 5 and 6. So these five times in that short spectrum there you find the, the frequent reference that the incarnate Lord is your Savior. He saves his people from their sins. The first advent. But, Titus has something else in mind. The first advent, he appeared. Verse 13, the second advent, he will appear. It is a glorious appearing that is going to happen. Do you see it there? Verse 13. While we wait for this blessed hope. Christmas has happened. The, the incarnate Lord has come. He's returned to glory. One day he's coming back again. This glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you see that? This is the second advent. It is as sure and certain as the first. We live in anticipation of that. That is advent. So as much as Christmas, 25th of December, as near in the calendar as we can, was a definite event, 
the incarnation, so the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus will be a definite end. If the first is incarnation, the second is coronation, coming in glory. It's a great word for Advent, coronation. Uh, next year, it's Her Majesty's 60th re year of the, her reign in this country. I was little boy blue in the coronation. A very little boy, very young. It gives you an idea. It's a long time ago. Think, you know, the coronation, the queen. Think of the coronation of our sovereign Lord, Jesus Christ. It's a glorious hope, glorious. Advent is full of glory, glory. Whatever the commercial uh, impact upon us has made, this is sheer glory. The Savior gives hope beyond this life. It is a blessed hope, a blessed hope. It's got a present dimension, yes, and a future anticipation. The coronation of the Sovereign Lord. And Christ's second advent, the term that's used there in verse 13 is epiphania. Root word mean epiphany, from which, of course, we remind ourselves of, of the, the feast of uh, epiphany. Twelve days after Christmas. I was looking at this again, and okay, that will be in the new year. But when you think about it, the Magi, okay, it was Jesus' manifestation to them as Gentiles, not their um, affirmation of him. It was that. But what you actually see on, on, on this epiphany, the appearing, it isn't the appearing of the, the Magi with all their wisdom, it's the appearing of the Christ child to the Gentiles. And ever, for us now, ever since, the door to the Gentiles is open. And we can call him Savior. That's his name. It's glory. And all of which then brings, brings us to this, this wonderful word. Christmas is glory. What is glory? Well, some people could interpret glory as uh, awe or oh, whoa. When you see something, maybe a beautiful view or, a, or, a, or one of those wonderful footballing or sporting events or a wonderful rugby try, which you can have good tries and still lose the game, but it's still the wow factor. Though that sort of thing, it's a sense of amazement that somehow we can't really put, put into words. This, oh, whoa. Now, if, if, uh, this is the point. Take it with you now. When, before you put up your Christmas tree or, the, or whatever you're going to do and start shopping, it, this, oh, wow. If you haven't got that, then you've missed the point. You've missed the point. And it's so easy, isn't it, to miss the point. It's glory. Glory is a divine word used over 400 times in the Bible. Glory. At certain points, certain events, certain promises, there it is. Glory. I hope that this Christmas will bring glory. Well, what do we mean by glory? Glory is God's self-revelation. That's how he makes himself known to us. Now, I want to quote to you uh, from a theologian called Karl Barth. Now, Let's say one thing about him first. When he was doing a tour, he was a, a very influential German theologian, and he was touring America, and he was speaking at one of the big uh, institutions in America, and an open forum, and uh, one of the students said, Professor Bart, could you tell us what 
was your most profound thought. He was so influential in the whole theological world globally. And he went quiet and he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Isn't that something? I think they were probably disappointed in that. But you just think about it. But now I'm going to quote him when he does say something profound. So, listen to this. Here it is. It's a definition of glory. So put your thinking caps on for a moment. Here it is. Glory is the self-revealing sum of all divine perfection. It is the fullness of God's deity, the emerging, self-expressing, self-manifesting reality of all that God is. It is God's being. It is the essence of God. That is Christmas. That's little wonder that the angels are overcome as we think about the glory of God and the incarnation of the Son of God. Okay, let's uh, come to three things very quickly by way of conclusion. First of all, Christmas then is seeing God's glory. I hope that we will have that. That we will have a glimpse of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And whether it is in the excitement of, oh, wow, or the quietness, perhaps the more reflective side with Mary, where she pondered these things in her heart. Still glory. Glory. You have it in Luke 2, verse 9. The angels appeared to the shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone around. And they were excited. No, they were terrified. Sense of the divine coming down to mortal people. The glory of God. The impact on these lowly, possibly uneducated shepherds was transforming. And uh, just to turn to, to Luke's Gospel for a moment, just to see this. I know we're familiar with it, but just to capture the glory of God here and its transforming power. There's the shepherds, Luke chapter 2 and uh, verse 13. See, the angel is saying, verse 10, don't be afraid, I bring you good news of great joy today in the city of David, and so on. Then verse 13, suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his grace and favor rests. Glory. And is that the end of it? Well, they... Witness the events. Verse 20, the conclusion. The shepherds returned. Yes, back to the grim business of being out in the nights and hard work. The grind of life, perhaps. They returned. There it is, verse 20. Glorifying and praising God for the things that they'd seen. And if for us that we, after Christmas continue, return to work and family and home and everything, glorifying God and praising Him for all that He's doing. Glory radiating from the Christ child. Secondly, Christmas is receiving God's glory. Yes, 
Okay? It's seeing. Seeing the glory of God. But we can't be passive about this. You can look, can't you? Like window shopping at Christmas. And move on. But now, seeing and receiving. Receiving God's glory. You see in verse um, 32, this is a, this is a lovely uh, account of uh, Simeon. You see in verse 28, what we call the Nunctimitus. Uh, in verse 28, he took the child in his arms. This is Luke chapter 2, verse 28. Praising God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, okay, I've seen the glory of God, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation of the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The glory of your people Israel. A glimpse of this glory. Now, if humans were to approach the sun, they would be incinerated. And God's glory would eclipse the sun. So this is his unveiled glory. It has to be. We couldn't cope with his glory. It's dangerous to us. So the only way that this glory can be known to the shepherds or to us is it's a veiled glory. God comes down. It's, he's condescending in the sense that he would have to be coming to us. So you find Simeon on the eighth day when Jesus is taken to be circumcised. Now let your servant depart in peace. My eyes have seen. Yes, and he takes the child in his arms. Well, what are we to do? We are to take this Christ into our lives in the way that Simeon took him into his arms. He is my Savior. He is my Lord. That's the glory. And this isn't a spectator thing. We, humankind, are created in the image of God. We are told that. We're created for intimacy, for fellowship with God. And yet, through rebellion and sinfulness and attitudes, that image has been marred. In Jesus, that is restored. It's restored because it's his grace. Some of you might remember that film, Waterloo. It was, uh, came out in the... Uh, early 70s, and um, Napoleon is carried off the battlefield. He's a great leader. He's exhausted, and he inquires of his aid, after I am dead, what do you think the world will say of me? And his very devoted aid said that you extended the limits of glory. Napoleon. Well, that's a view for what it's worth. But Christmas is about Jesus extending the limits of his glory. It's a veiled glory. One day in the coronation we shall see it in a way that now we can't. And faith will give way to sight. The glory of God restoring that which is lost by sinful man. And lastly, Christmas is not only seeing God's glory not only receiving God's glory, but here's the challenge. We're going out from here, going home with our families and friends at work and 
Christmas is reflecting God's glory. That's, what, that's the big challenge for us as believing people. As we have embraced Jesus Christ, we are called to reflect this glory. If we, just to conclude, come back to Titus. Just see this again so that you, you, you'll see more fully what, uh, what I'm trying to get at here. Come back to Titus chapter 2 and verse 10. We've made reference to this already. Here is a, a society with all of its injustices, just as we have today. Ours is a fallen world, imperfection, in, injustices we know. Uh, and you find in Titus 2 and verse 9, teach slaves to be subject to the masters and everything. To please them, do not talk back to them. Do not steal from them. Do not show, uh, but show that they can be fully trusted. And this is the, this is the challenge. In the most difficult situations in life, what? That in every way, they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. And where you and I are now today, we are called to make this Savior attractive. So that people might say, even if we are not aware of it, you know, I would like to know you as Savior. I would like to have the assurance that when... I pass from this world that I am safe in him. I would want to know that even though I can't always forgive myself, that he can forgive me and I can trust him. Make this gospel, that's the meaning of teaching, make the gospel of God our Savior, make it attractive. It's a big challenge, isn't it? In the home, with our family in work with our friends and colleagues, in our community, with our neighbours. What a big challenge it is for us in this past week when the, all the discussion of the plans and so on, and all the things that people have said for us collectively and individually with a measure of true integrity to make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. That is a great counterculture movement, isn't it? We need... A restored glory, an enthusiasm and an excitement about Jesus that makes him attractive. I thought the best way to illustrate this as we conclude is to relate a, a, a true story of W.E. Sangster. He was um, president of the Methodist uh, movement for, for several years and was in the Westminster Central Hall in London, opposite the Houses of Parliament and the Thames. Well, he was also a member of the selection panel of interviewing prospective pastors for the Methodist ministry. And uh, he had a reputation of being formidable. And uh, a rather nervous young man presented himself to Dr. Sangster. And uh, he gave him an opportunity to speak as a candidate and uh, his reply ran along the lines something like this. Well, he said, I'm not the sort of person who would um, set the Thames on fire, so to speak, he said. And he thought he should explain that he was rather shy and retiring uh, by nature. Sangster says in that context, I quote, 
My dear young brother, I am not interested to know if you would set the Thames on fire. What I want to know is this. If I picked you up today by the scruff of the neck and dropped you into the Thames, would it sizzle? In other words, in other words, not this talking about putting the Thames on fire. Are you on fire? Are you on fire? That is the big issue, isn't it, when we think about Christmas and glory. There ought to be, we ought to be almost incandescent with the glory and the zeal of this Lord Jesus who came among us. The gospel of the burning heart. The gospel of change, transformed lives, of attractive lives that point to him and others want to come to know him, to love him and to serve him. May we encounter afresh the glory of God this Christmas and may it transform our lives, our communities and families. May it do that. That would be glorious.